The reading this morning is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The word of God. Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. So, so in, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, the author provides us some contrasts about how men and women experience various moments and various seasons of life. Uh, those of you that are fans of good music may recognize that this passage of Scripture was used to inspire a Beatles song. It's a, it's a famous passage of Scripture. Let me, let me read. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There's more, but, but I'm going to stop there. The author says there is a time to laugh and a time to dance. So towards the end of the fall, uh, during an evening the gospel community my family and I was a part of, we were transitioning from our mealtime into more formal discussion. Like I often do, I started the conversation with an icebreaker-type question. Those of you that have been around our church for some time know I have a bit of a reputation for these types of questions. Uh, what, was, what was your dream job? What would you like to do on a Sunday if you had an afternoon free of obligations? What's your favorite breakfast cereal? If you were an animal, what type of animal would you be? I've actually never asked that one. There's simple questions to get everyone talking and laughing and listening. This particular week, I went a different angle and I asked, how are you celebrating, how are you experiencing evidences of God's grace? What are you, what are you celebrating as you live out the Christian faith? I think everyone in my community would agree we struggled to respond that night. If I had asked them to share about a sin they were struggling with, or a trial they were facing, or a weakness they had, well, that would have been pretty easy. But celebrating was hard. Later, I was with a, a few other individuals in our church sharing about the experience, and they described similar scenarios. When individuals are asked about sins and struggles, they respond quickly. When individuals are asked about what's going well, what, what they are celebrating, they grapple for answers. Now, I'd like to say this, this situation is unique to First City, but that is certainly not true. This is a common occurrence for Christians. So, so much so, the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, as he described objections to the Christian faith, he made this observation. I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. 
Now, one of the problems people have with Christianity is Christians who don't look redeemed. Now, this could be because they lack holiness, but it could also be because they lack joy. Christians have been rescued from the power of sin and death. As such, we should be laughing, and we should be dancing, and we should be rejoicing, yet much of the time, we lack joy. We lack excitement. Far too often, we are known for being somber and sad and anxious and downcast. Individuals familiar with Scripture know God's people. We should be characterized by rejoicing and laughing, even dancing. Instructions to rejoice are encountered over and over and over again in pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God's people were, were to gather, they were to gather no less than three times a year to celebrate God's work on their behalf. And those gatherings included long holidays from work, feasting on fantastic food, downing delicious drinks, gathering with God's people, and shouting, and singing, and yes, dancing. When Jesus comes on the scene, the Gospels record that his first miracle is turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And so in the Gospel of John, as Jesus summarizes to his disciples the purposes of his teachings, what he was all about, he says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So as Pastor Chris and I reflected on areas we want to grow as a church, we recognize we have an opportunity to mature here. So much so, it is reflected on the first of five strategic initiatives we have for 2020. Initiative number one is promote a culture of celebration. God has been so good to us. Good to us as a church, good to us as individuals. As such, we want to be a people who are known for giving thanks and rejoicing and celebrating and feasting and laughing. So this morning, we want to we wanna think about a habit of celebration. We want to think about how Christians are to rejoice and give thanks and express gratitude and laugh. Our scripture reading this morning was Psalm 150. It is a, a psalm of celebration. I want to use this psalm to establish a framework for celebration. And in doing so, I want to explore three elements of such a framework. The marking of a moment, acknowledging the magnitude of the moment, and the movement of the moment. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow along in the pages of Scripture, open it up to Psalm 150. I know we will have words on the screen, but it's always good to have the Scripture open. Let's start with verse 1. This is what the psalmist says. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. God's people are instructed to celebrate. They are to do this in his sanctuary, and they are to do this in his mighty heavens. The psalmist is commanding us to rejoice, which means celebration isn't so much a response to external circumstances, 
Rather, it is a choice of the will. We choose to rejoice in particular moments, in particular moments or circumstances or situations. So element number one in our framework of celebration is the marking of a moment. Something significant is recognized or remembered, and the moment is marked as a time of celebration. In our culture, we do this with moments like birthdays and wedding anniversaries. Celebrating those occasions isn't so much a response to external circumstances. It is a choice we make to be glad and to have fun. So another way, another way to say this is that moments, moments of happiness, they might lead to us celebrating, but moments we choose to mark for celebration will be marked with gladness, will be characterized with us being glad. Psalm 150 is marking a moment that is the conclusion of the book of Psalms. It is a book where God's people have been expressing agony and anger and disappointment and desire to the Lord. The manner in which the Psalms have been compiled acknowledges the conclusion of the book. It is a moment to celebrate. So much so, the final five psalms, 146 through 150, begin with the phrase, praise the Lord. In the brief six verses that make up Psalm 150, this expression, praise the Lord, it's used 13 times. God's people are instructed to mark the moment and to celebrate. One moment that's marked, it it has challenged me a bit. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, he's rising up out of the water. The heavens are opened, and the Father proclaims, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father, as an act of his will, marks the moment of his son's baptism. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and he declares he is well pleased. The Father is marking the moment. This is the first element for our framework of celebration. Let's look at the second. Verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. So so one of the ways the book of Psalms might mark the conclusion of the book is saying something like, this is the conclusion of the book of Psalms. Let us rejoice at the conclusion of a remarkable book. When such recognition would be marking the moment, but it would be missing a significant magnitude. The magnitude of something reflects its size or weight or dimensions. A conclusion like the one I described would miss marking the moment as a moment of God's mighty deeds and miss marking the moment as a moment where God's character is on display. The psalmist makes sure the magnitude of the moment is acknowledged. So the second element of our framework for celebration is acknowledging the magnitude of the moment. There are ways, there are ways that many of us miss the magnitude of moments. In some ways, we look to moments for ultimate meaning and ultimate identity. Moments of affirmation, moments of significant success, moments of pleasure or comfort. 
In a way, these moments represent idols in our lives. They can be worshipped. And when that happens, such celebrations of those moments are hollow and shallow and empty. Celebrating moments is certainly not an activity restricted to Christians. You and I know plenty of non-Christians who celebrate things like Christmas gifts or a victory of their favorite sports team or a job promotion. But there should be a sense that celebration for us as Christians is different. I can celebrate eating a good steak or drinking a delicious beverage by enjoying the steak and taking pleasure in the beverage. As Christians, we are invited into joining, enjoying God's creation that way. But if that's the extent of my celebration, I miss the true size and weight and dimensions and magnitude of what's going on. 1 Timothy 4.4 says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So this means a, a Christian celebrates each moment and circumstance as a gift from God. Now, this doesn't have to be weird. This shouldn't be represented by some, some weird prayer language with big words. But sometimes it does mean we say grace before a meal. We give thanks. And it always means we have a disposition of gratitude and thankfulness. And so moments of feasting on good food, moments of experiencing delicious drinks, moments of sexual oneness, Moments of significant success, they are enjoyed, they are celebrated, but they are not worshipped. A greater magnitude is recognized. Your creator at, is at work. Your savior is about the business of deliverance. And so your celebration is deeper and richer and thicker and higher. So the framework for celebrating begins with marking the moment. And it includes acknowledging the magnitude of the moment. The third element of a habit of celebration is the movement of the moment. Let's read verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 150. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So the, the psalmist is describing the movement of the moment. There are music instruments, musical instruments being played. People are dancing. They are engaging their breath and their bodies and their entire beings. This is the movement of celebration. Now to contrast, I want you to imagine a scene for a moment. Let's say you're watching your favorite football team. Or if you don't like football, at least try to imagine you're around someone who does. Let's replay a scenario from last week. Okay? The Kansas City Chiefs, they were behind 24 to nothing in, a, in their playoff game in the second quarter. Most football teams, just for the non-football fans, they lose when encountering that type of scenario. The Kansas City rallied. They scored touchdown after touchdown. If I recall correctly, it was like five touchdowns in 12 minutes. Again, for non-football fans, that doesn't happen. 
What was a significant deficit was quickly transformed into a significant lead. What does the movement of the moment look like for a fan of the Chiefs? That was exciting. Of course, Patrick Mahomes would do this. The Chiefs, the Chiefs quarterback, he would do this. He was the 2018 NFL Most Valuable Player. Maybe the fan would share statistics of how Kansas City had done something similar in the past. Is that the movement of the moment? No. That's reserved. That's withdrawn. That's subdued. When this person celebrates, there is animation in his or her voice. They are jumping off the couch. They are raising up their hands. They are celebrating with their whole being. This is the movement of the moment. In the sixth chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, the ark of God returns to the city of Jerusalem. The ark was, was so significant for God's people. It represented his presence and his protection and his covenant, his, his relationship with his people. And several months had passed since it had been captured by Israel's arch enemy, the nation of the Philistines. And so the people of Israel, they longed for its re- return. So as, as it returns, Scripture describes King David and those who rejoiced with him this way. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David and the house of Israel, they marked the moment. They chose to celebrate. They recognized the magnitude of the moment was more, more than simply a structure the ark, more than simply the, this physical structure returning to Jerusalem. David was wearing an ephod at this point, and, and this, was, this was an object that was used for worship. It, it was a simple linen robe wore by priests. He was acknowledging God was present with his people, that God was blessing them, he was caring for them, he was protecting them. And so the movement of the moment involved him dancing before the Lord with all his might. The term for dancing here seems to refer to a whirling dance. David is expressing a joy that can't be contained by mere conversation or a simple raising of the hands. Now, when David's wife, Michael, when she saw him doing this, this is how Scripture describes her response. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Notice there is a way that David was engaged in the movement of the moment that some might say was scandalous. Michael wanted David to conform to particular cultural and group norms. Wearing an ephod when he celebrated, it was not sinful, but in a sense, it was scandalous. It didn't conform to her expectations. 
during Jesus' earthly ministries, excuse me, during Jesus' earthly ministry, one of the accusations made about him was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was known for celebrating. So much so, we might say it was scandalous. In his encounters with people, again, he wasn't sinful, but he didn't conform to group norms. He didn't allow the expectations of others to limit his celebration. You don't receive such an accusation by not celebrating in a particular manner, a manner that embraces the movement of the moment. Jesus rejoiced. Jesus wept. The stories he told were filled with irony and certainly resulted in laughter. Here's what I want us to see. When celebrating moments, we are often reserved and withdrawn and distant and subdued. We lack animation in our bodies. That is not the movement of the moment. In celebrating the movement of the moment, your body will move. You will shout. You will rejoice. So much so, you may not be conforming to group norms. You may be abandoning an agenda or particular expectations. This is not sinful. But the movement of the moment may mean that you're accused of doing something scandalous. Now, we've, we've established this framework of celebrating. The marking of a moment, acknowledging the magnitude of a moment, and describing the movement of a moment. Let me, let me tell you about a time I missed the moment. To be honest, I, I'm, I'm not great at celebrating. I have my head down, I work hard, and, and I miss many moments. And there's a, there's a particular moment that sticks out for me that really burns. I may have shared about this before, so if you've heard it, I apologize for the repetition. Uh, several years back, uh, the gospel community I was a part of, we were checking in with one another. We were asking questions like, what are you celebrating? What are you struggling with? How can we be praying for one another? One of the men in the community who had, had acknowledged a lack of faith in Christianity, whom we'd been praying for, We'd been begging God for months to, to save him. He remarked that he had become a Christian. As, as the discussion facilitator, I listened, and I, and I said something like, thanks for sharing. I mean, that's celebrating, right? And I said, let's move on to the next person. This is missing the moment. Fortunately, my wife, she is much better at celebrating than me. She stopped the conversation. She, she turned to this man. She asked him to share more. And she said something to the effect, we need to celebrate. Jesus says there are angels rejoicing in heaven when one sinner is saved. We need to celebrate too. I missed the moment because I was too focused on everything else that needed to be done. I get so worried about completing a pre-planned agenda. I'm preoccupied with personal performance and people's perceptions. Such a disposition prevents me from marking moments. I fail to acknowledge the magnitude of the moment and the movement of the moment for me is far too reserved and distant and distracted. One of the people 
that, that I am learning much from about celebrating and marking the moment is my five-year-old daughter, Olivia. One of the moments she consistently marks is when I walk through the door after working outside the home all day. She will usually run to meet me, and she will declare, Daddy's home. In the movement of the moment, she opens her arms and gives me a big hug to, to welcome me in the door. And she does this day after day. It doesn't get old for her. The reality is, Olivia marks many moments. She rejoices in her dolls. She rejoices in playing with a neighbor. She rejoices in eating a stick of cheese. This week, she was rejoicing in writing Olivia one time, not multiple times, one time on whole sheets of paper and then taping them up as decorations and marks of her accomplishment in various rooms of the house. When the topic of, of trimming her toenail came up this week, she rejoiced in her toenail. That's my best toenail. <laughs> Marking moments flows out of her overall disposition. Now, some of us may say, well, well she's, she's a child. Of course she has a disposition to rejoice. She has little to worry about, little to be preoccupied with, little to cause her anxiety. Maybe this is one of the reasons Jesus teaches us as his followers to become like a child. Out of such a disposition, moments are marked. Moments aren't missed. To get a picture of what this disposition looks like, let's look at another passage of Scripture teaching us to rejoice. Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you missed it, because apparently, for some reason, people like you and I, we must be prone to miss an instruction to rejoice. This must be a common thing for Christians. He finds it necessary to repeat himself. But again, I say, rejoice. This repetition affirms celebrating or rejoicing it is expected of God's people, but it is certainly not automatic. It is a disposition we must intentionally cultivate. I know, I know many of us think a disposition of sadness or sorrow or disappointment is, is what's opposed to a disposition of celebration. But that's not where the Apostle Paul goes here. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Sadness and sorrow are not opposed to celebrating. Preoccupation is. Being anxious with the things of the world. How I described my experience earlier. 
it leads us to miss marking moments. It leads us to struggling with acknowledging the magnitude of the moment. And it certainly impacts our movement in the moment. Here's the difference between Olivia and I. She doesn't feel pressure to perform. She is secure, knowing she is cared for, to embrace a disposition of rejoicing. We trust in God's love and care and protection and his character to work on our behalf. So one more passage. Let's take a moment to reflect on his character, who he is. When Jesus marks the moment of the launching of his public ministry, he quotes from a chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 61. This chapter describes how in him, because of the gospel, the blind will receive sight, captives will be set free, and the brokenhearted will be healed. And in verse 7, it says this about what God's people inherit in him. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The moment being marked here is a moment of the redemption of God's people. There will no longer be shame. There will no longer be dishonor. God's people will have everlasting joy. And they will receive, the language that's used here is a double portion. Now, to clarify the explanation of a double portion, let me say this. If you normally order one Chick-fil-A sandwich, you get two. If two is more your style, you get four, and you get a chocolate shake with whipped cream and a cherry. Gluten and dairy restrictions are out the window. The movement of the moment of redemption, God is inviting his people people into is a feast that is excessive and unnecessary. It is more than you need and certainly more than you deserve. It leaves you stuffed and satisfied. The imagery of the moment is intended to be, let's use this word again, scandalous. Too many times our celebrations are skimpy rather than scandalous. This is not the movement of the moment in Scripture. This is not the feast God invites his people to enjoy. And so may our celebrations, may they be excessive and unnecessary and scandalous. As I conclude, y'all might be wondering, hey, what are some realistic ways to practice a habit of celebration? In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, which is a which is a book we will recommend frequently as a resource throughout this series. Author Richard Foster, he, de- he describes a number of ways to practice celebrating. He-, he includes things like singing, dancing, shouting, laughing, engaging creative gifts associated with your imagination, recognizing particular events like birthdays and anniversaries. Here's the deal, right? Engaging the habit of celebration, it really isn't rocket science. 
I'm not giving you a big to-do list here. When we observe baptisms as a church, celebrate. When, when you gather with your gospel community and you, you are asked, hey, what are some evidences of grace? Celebrate. When, when you have a prayer answered, celebrate. When you are present with a brother or sister in Christ, celebrate. When you're praying and reflecting on God's goodness to you, celebrate. So my, my wife's mother, she was uh, diagnosed with cancer sometime in early or mid-December. The scans, they didn't look great. The prognosis, the prognosis was concerning. We prayed. Her, her family prayed. Many of, you, many of you in the room, you prayed with us. When our extended family gathered at my, my wife's parents' home for the Christmas holiday, you might imagine it was a little more somber than normal. But for the first time in 25 years that I've been a part of this family, a family with all sorts of challenging relational dynamics, we gathered in a room and we prayed. All of us doing this, we were begging God for healing and for a positive outcome. So when the doctor performed the surgery right after Christmas, it was a, it was a bit of a shock how little cancer was found. It did not align with what had been seen on the scans. In follow-up visits with her physicians, they have stressed that it doesn't make sense how little cancer was encountered. So as a family, we very much attribute such a result to the work of the Lord. So Michelle's brother, who professed faith in Christ a few years back, he called and he asked, hey, can we, can we get together? Can we celebrate what God has done? And so next Sunday afternoon, we're going to meet. The moment will be marked. We will acknowledge the presence and care and protection of our God. And the movement of the moment will include feasting on fantastic food and shouting. And our faces and our bodies, we will express gratitude and joy. And there will be likely, there, there likely will be people crying tears of joy. This is what it means to practice a habit of celebration. May we be a people who are known for similar such actions.